Okay, John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is is God's word. Thank you, Landy. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, are the personification of God's message to us. That everything that prophets and priests and kings declared by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you embodied. We thank you for that. We thank you that your word is still living and active in the person of Jesus, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, we thank you that This morning, that sword is going to come and divide our our joints and our marrow, our soul and our spirit, our thoughts and our intents. And Lord, we invite you to search us by your word this morning. We surrender to the, the spotlight of the Holy Spirit searching our hearts. And God, we pray that that as you illuminate in us things that are displeasing to you, things that are causing us not to flourish as your people, that we would be quick to repent, that we would be quick to to look to you as our only hope, as our only answer, that you would be to us, as John just said in this in this opening of his gospel, that you would be both life and light to us. God, I ask you that you would burrow deep into my own heart, Lord God, expose my weakness, my darkness, Lord God, and help me to cling to you, Lord God, to not cling to, to thoughts or notes, but to cling to you and you only, that you would, you would uh, try me and reprove me even as I speak your word, Lord God, that I would be subject to the very words that I speak. And I thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, before I get started, is it okay if I just say I want to uh, welcome the Albuquerque branch to church this morning? So uh, glad you guys are all here today. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, Jennifer and, and uh, Matthew Moya's daughter, uh, Josie, uh, got married to a pretty good-looking guy, I'd say. Would you agree with that, Josie? His name is, his name is Dylan DeWitt, and they did that yesterday, and it was just a fabulous ceremony. In fact, I'm going to really embarrass him. Josie and Dylan stand up for us, so y'all give them a hand. 
Dylan came up to me during the, uh, the, during, after the wedding ceremony, y'all can sit down. After the wedding ceremony, Dylan came up to me and he said, I'll see you in the morning, Pastor. And I said, you don't have better things to do than to, to, to meet me at church. And so, no, he said, I want to worship with God's people. So I really, I really admired him for saying that. Um, and so Josie and Dylan just recently bought a house in Lubbock. So we're going to be seeing a lot more of them. I know many of you have already fallen head over heels in love with the Moya family. And they're just kind of adding to that. I told their former pastor in Albuquerque yesterday, I said, man, the Moyas are just the gift that keep on giving. I don't know if they have any other relatives that are going to move here, but, uh, but we, we uh, are really grateful for, for that. And it was a wonderful time yesterday. So welcome aboard, new DeWitt family. So anyway, um, well, last week, you know, we started this series um, examining the roles of the prophet, the priest, and the king in the Bible. And we looked at the role specifically of Old Testament prophets uh, and, and how they functioned. We saw that their ministries were focused on two things primarily, the, the proclamation the uh, the revelation, the declaration of God's word. And then we also saw that they were intercessors, that they interceded in many, many instances for the people of God and for others. And we looked at, we kind of ended and in, in kind of put the cap on that by looking how that Jesus Christ fulfilled the role of prophet perfectly, that he was the summation of the role of the prophet uh, it, when he appears in the New Testament, he fulfilled those roles. So today what we'd like to do is we're going to continue to examine the role uh, that Christ plays as the fulfillment of the prophetic ministry. And there is no better place, I think, to see this than the words that Landy just read for us in the preamble to John's gospel. It begins, you may have noticed this, especially if you're unfamiliar with that term. He, he, he talks about the word. He never says Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ. He says the word. Um, and he, he, he bestows this title on Christ. We, we find out from the context later, he's speaking of Christ, of the title, the word. And I want to point out to you, as we're talking about the Christ in the prophetic ministry, you cannot be much more associated with God's word than to literally embody it. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. John says to us, in the beginning was the word. And John uses the same words in the opening of his gospel that opened the Bible itself in Genesis. You remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, here he says, in the beginning was the word. What John is asserting here, he's asserting that Christ is an uncreated being. Christ did not spring from the imagination of God. He always was. God, Jesus existed eternally, uncreated. He eternally existed with the Father from the very beginning. That's what John means when he says the Word was with God. And then he adds a clear statement of Jesus Christ's full identity when he proclaims these words. And the Word that was in the beginning, the Word was God. He's not just picturing Jesus somehow by the side of God in the beginning, but he's saying very boldly that Jesus fully was that God. Even though he was distinct from the Father, Jesus was fully God and is fully God. 
John even goes on to affirm his role in creation, bringing us back to these words in the beginning. He says he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He frames for us as believers in the new covenant. He frames for us right thinking about Jesus. Jesus was not an afterthought. He wasn't a created being. He was in the beginning. And he was an agent of God's creative work. In using the words in the beginning, what I want you to not miss is he's not just making an allusion to Genesis 1-1. In using the words in the beginning, John is saying more than just a note about Christ's eternal or divine nature. He means that the arrival of Jesus in the flesh heralds a brand new beginning. It's a resetting. The the reset button has been pressed. A resetting of creation and a new order of things is coming into play. And he then talks about the uniqueness of the eternal word who took on humanity. And he uses these words. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now in later chapters he uses he focuses on these words light and life. And in later chapters it's interesting in the book of John, G, John would record Jesus using these exact same words. You most of you know John 14:6. What does Jesus say there? He says, "I am the way, the truth, and the He says I'm the he uses that word there. Then in John chapter 8, he says, "I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness. Christ's person, John is trying to herald to us, he's trying to proclaim to us, to let us know that Jesus' person and his work would be both life-giving and light-producing. To reject him, to set him aside, it would be to to condemn or you know to reject not just him but his message or his works it would be to condemn a person to death forever if in him is life then to reject Christ is death holistic death it's death spiritually and physically and it also though goes further it, it imprisons them to the deepest spiritual darkness to reject Jesus Christ and yet Jesus himself John is pointing out here Jesus himself could not be the victim of death or darkness as his resurrection from the grave after his crucifixion would convincingly prove. But what does John mean? Let's go back to those first few words. What does John mean by calling Jesus Christ the Word? It it connotes, when when he he applies this word, the word, to to Jesus, it connotes God's own self-expression. In other words, he's saying that if Jesus is the word, God is saying something. A word is something you say. It's a tool with which you communicate. And so what I want you to understand about this title this morning is that we, you and I, can look to Jesus and know everything God wants you to know about Himself. There's nothing about God that is vital for you to know that you're going to discover outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Vital. Everything God wanted to say. Now, now, God has always been speaking. He's been speaking to humanity since the Garden of Eden. He's done so through creation. 
He's done so through miracles, through deliverances like the Exodus. He's done it through giving of his law, through the messages from the prophets. And he did so for thousands of years. But now everything that he had been saying, all of it, from Genesis to Malachi, is wrapped up, it's summed up, and tied with a neat little bow in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. And when you think about that, it should really elevate the person of Christ in your mind. You want to know what God wants, what God's will is, what He's saying to you. You find that by looking to Jesus. And in Him, in Jesus, all of God's nature is revealed. In Jesus, all of God's will is accomplished. And in Him, all of God's promises are kept. Uh, We read this last week, and interestingly enough, we did not coordinate this, but Katie read this to open the service. Last week I read you this scripture long ago, at many times in many ways. This is Hebrew 1.1. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That was God's mode of communication a long time ago. But now, he says, the writer of Hebrews in verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. So having established Jesus as the eternally existing, creating God, and the summation of all God ever wanted to communicate to humanity, he now lays before us, you and I, an astonishing truth. So here's the word, the message of God, embodied, personified by Jesus. And John tells us this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And more than that, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace, full of truth. Previously, God had spoken, as we read in Hebrews, through men like the prophets, but now His message has literally appeared in our very midst in the person of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means during his time on earth, he looks like we look. He lives where we live. He eats what we eat. God had told Moses, you might remember this, on Mount Sinai, God is speaking with Moses. They're, they're fellowshipping. The law is being exchanged. He's, he's speaking his will to Moses. And Moses comes up with this request. He says, let me see you. Let me take a look, God. I am so impressed by your majesty and glory. I want to see you. And God says these very critical words to Moses. He says, Moses, no one can see my face and live. And we all, we, most of us have heard that story and we, it, it causes us to, to wonder and imagine and speculate on the majesty of God. But I want you to understand what John is saying now. God told Moses, no one could see his face and live. But now John says that through the miracle of Christ's birth and life in the incarnation that we have seen his glory. Looked right into the face of God. It's incredible. That very thought should give us goosebumps. That Jesus came and people looked at him, spoke to him, walked with him, touched him. He was God. And we've seen his glory. Now, this could mean a couple of things. Last week I told you the story of the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus. And when they got up there, 
His face and his clothes became glorious and radiant. And all of a sudden Moses and Elijah appeared with him and spoke with him. And God said, this is my son, listen to him. But John was on that mountain with his brother James and with Peter. And he saw what happened when, son, when there, was this, there was this transaction that happened and Jesus's real identity, his true identity was revealed. But people, you can look at that and think, oh yeah, so he's seen his glory, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that people, common people, in common moments, also saw the glory of the Father. When? When he turned water into wine. When he healed their deafness and blindness and leprosy. When he walked on the sea and commanded winds and waves. And when he even spoke to the dead and they raised at the sound of his voice, common people were seeing the glory of God. And though Jesus looked like us, the people that were seeing him immediately recognized that Jesus was clearly different that he was wiser, that he was more powerful, that he was altogether better than us. Everybody okay raising your hand and confessing before all this crowd that Jesus is better than you? Okay, I think I'm comfortable with that. John says that one of the indicators of uh, of his betterness was that he was full of grace and truth. Now you might just read over those words. May even just say, okay, that's Bible language. But what I want you to understand is being full of grace and truth is difficult, if not impossible, for you and I. Amen? Now listen to me. Sometimes I am full of truth when I have a political disagreement with somebody. I'm full of truth. When I'm angry with my wife about the way she's doing something that I disagree, I am full of truth. When someone disappoints me, cuts me off in traffic or takes something that I'm trying to purchase. I'm full of truth. But in those moments, maybe you're like me. I don't display much grace in those moments. Full of truth, low on grace. There's other times when I'm trying to talk to somebody who's maybe their their lives are you know entrenched in some grave sin and and I'm intimidated by others opinion of me if I were to speak up so I may show something that kind of looks like grace but it's entirely devoid of the truth that's going to set people free see Jesus didn't say um and you shall know the niceness and and you will be set free he said you'll know the truth and you'll be set free See, that was never, ever, ever, ever the case with Jesus Christ. You may recall a story in the Bible when a a very rich young man came to him, and man, he was trying to check off all the boxes on his spiritual to-do list, and he said, hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, easy, keep the commandments, the ones Paul read. You know, don't kill people, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and father, that sort of thing. And he said, Fantastic, Jesus. I've done it all. And Jesus, being Jesus, said, Oh, there's one more I need to add to that. Take all that stuff you're trusting in and sell it. Get rid of it. Now, what was Jesus being there? He was being full of truth. 
He wasn't like, he wasn't compromising the truth because this guy was a nice guy and maybe could give a big donation to Jesus' ministry. He was telling him the truth. He said, look, you are ensnared. You are entrapped by your idolatry to your stuff. And until you address that idolatry, there is no room in eternal life for you. None. You cannot have it both. So sell it all and follow me. And the Bible says this incredible phrase. So there's the truth, full of truth. And the Bible says that this guy missed entirely what he was being offered and he walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff. But the Bible says this, it's incredible. It says, and as he's walking away, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Full of grace, full of truth. John goes on to tell or tell us John the Baptist in this particular instance. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now John the Baptist in the New Testament, in the very beginning of the New Testament, is very significant because his function, he serves as the last Old Testament style prophet in his unique function of announcing the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. In fact, uh, Malachi and Isaiah both prophesied about John that he was coming, and so he filled those prophetic footsteps. And Jesus himself even says that the law and the prophets were until John. They, they came to an end um, in the Old Testament fashion at, with John's arrival. But notice what John's testimony was. So he's an Old Testament-style prophet. He comes, he's announcing the coming of Jesus. And look what John's testimony was about Jesus. He says, he ranks before me, and he was before me. As a prophet, John is acknowledging that Jesus is someone who both precedes him and is greater than him. Jesus, John is saying, is not just another prophet. He's not, Jesus did not come as the one who would take the Old Testament prophetic baton from John and keep going. No, Jesus is something John is saying entirely different. Remember, we're resetting the button here, the brand new beginning for history. And it comes with Jesus. It's not just another prophet. Religious leaders came to John one time. They were grilling him because of the fantastic success of his ministry. And they asked him if he was the prophet, if John himself was the prophet that Moses said was coming. We talked about this last week in Deuteronomy 18.5. And John clearly spoke and he said, I am not that prophet. But then he testified freely of the one who was that prophet. And he said of Jesus Christ, Behold, take a look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now that's important. Let me tell you why it's important. Because if you read through the, the, the letters of the, of the New Testament, you will find that the law and every message of the prophet was, of the prophets in the Old Testament was entirely incapable of taking away sin. And Jesus, and, and, and John says, it's a brand new day because Jesus has come and he will finally put the bullet in the head of sin. When John's disciples, as a pastor, I feel real sorry for John in this, but when, 
When John's disciples started to leave him in droves to follow Jesus instead, he didn't do what me and most of my pastor colleagues do. He wasn't shaken and offended and thinking, oh man, why didn't they like me? Instead, when John saw his disciples leaving to follow Jesus, he rejoiced. And his attitude was mission accomplished. That's all I ever wanted was for them to follow Jesus. He always deferred to Jesus as the greater prophet and much more than a prophet. John 3.30 sums this up so much. John is speaking, John the Baptist, and he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He's got this attitude that Jesus has to become greater and greater in his own heart and in the eyes of the people, even if that means that he has to become less and less. That Jesus was full of grace and truth has tremendous implications for you and I. Now, because he was full of grace and truth, you and I can be redeemed. And those who were dead in their sins, anybody here have a story where they were dead in their sins? Anybody remember those days? Just me? I remember them. I I, I hope you never run into somebody who remembers those days vividly because they'll tell you some stories. But now we can be redeemed and those who were dead in their sins can be made new and alive in Jesus Christ. This is one of my little theological pet peeves. I want you to know, if you've never heard this before, Jesus did not come to make you better. Jesus came so that you could be brand new. He doesn't use the old ingredients and mix up a new batch of you. He makes a brand new creation. The Bible says, look, everything's new. All things are passed away. Everything's become new. And John says, for from his fullness, we've received, we've all received grace upon grace. I like that. Grace upon grace. Remember tomorrow, if you go through trials, if you go through successes, just turn your face to heaven and say grace upon grace. Grace in abundance. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is full of grace. It's unlimited. There is no one, listen to me, I don't know who most of you are this morning. There is no one who has sinned their way past God's ability to forgive them, to save them, to rescue them. Not a single person. I don't care how rotten you are. You have not gone past God's reach. His love is steadfast, it's eternal, it's absolutely unchanging. But God, through Jesus, is also full of truth. He never caters to our weaknesses, He never gives you a pass, or He never compromises God's will or His law in any way. What He does, as I said a moment ago, He makes us new and He changes us from one glory to the next glory, into the image of His Son, Jesus. And John says here that it's from both His fullness of grace and His fullness of truth that you and I have all received this abundance of grace upon grace. There was grace in Him, grace in Jesus, to call to the weary, to the weak, to the broken, whether it was a, a an adulterous woman at a well or whether it was a, a, a criminal thief dying on a cross, he called to the weary, to the weak, to the broken. And yet in doing so, he always upheld and fulfilled the holy law of God perfectly. But he did so on our behalf. It's amazing. When Jesus 
fulfilled the law, He did that because you couldn't. He did it on your behalf, something that we could never do. And John reminds us that the law came through Moses. And Paul makes it clear in Romans, the law was holy. It showed us what God was really like. Its standard was much too high for us to keep because it showed us what God is really like. Paul said it like this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now what does that mean? It means that if you are trying to live your best life and be a good person, it is not going to save you. You'll be the best person in hell. That's what it's saying. The Bible says the law will not get that done for you. Because all the law does is highlight your sin. Paul says if the law didn't tell me what coveting was, I wouldn't even know that I had a problem with covetousness. It points it out. It exposes your sin. Exposes, and thereby, your need for Christ. The law's purpose was to show us how sinful we were so that we could cry out to be rescued from sin and from death by God Himself. But its purpose was never to save us. Again, Paul in Galatians says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written, all things written in the book of the law to do them. So what is Paul saying there? He's saying if you have an 85% average, not good enough. The only thing that that, uh, God would be impressed by is you uh, being at 100%. But through Jesus... We've been hammering home, hammering home. Through Jesus came grace and truth. See, the old covenant said, Obey and you will be blessed. And I don't even have to get you to raise your hands on this one. I'm going to tell you, every one of us has blown it. If you want to object, now is your time. I'll give you equal opportunity here. Every one of us has blown it. But the new covenant that Jesus established was put in place not when we obeyed, but when he obeyed for us. And now the Bible says in Ezekiel that he writes his laws on our heart so that we can serve him out of love and not out of fear of punishment. So we see Christ as a better prophet than all the Old Testament prophets because he encapsulates Everything they were pointing to and everything they promised by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was what God was saying. John says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. So how does Jesus make God known? First of all, as we've said, by showing up. Jesus is God, so when he dwelt among us, he made God known to us by his presence. Religious people in Jesus' day, and even today, often failed to grasp this. Jesus told a group of Pharisees that wanted to stone him, he said, I and my Father are one. That did not make the Pharisees feel better. But the most significant way that Jesus made the Father known to us was through his intercession. 
Jesus, like Abraham and Moses, which we discussed last week, was someone who intervened in the life of his people. And he did it through teaching, through miracles, and even through prayers. I love this little passage in the story of Simon at the Last Supper. And Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Boy, that would be encouraging news from the lips of Jesus, wouldn't it? And he says, but look, verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, it may not encourage me to know that Satan is demanding to have me to sift me like wheat, but man, it would fill me with all kinds of courage to know that Jesus was praying for me. Amen? And he says, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. But so we have... You know, Jesus did these prayers and he intervened in his teaching and miracles. But what was the cross? What was the cross but an intervention, an intercession into our lives? Like Abraham did when he prayed for the righteous people living in Sodom, which God was about to judge, Christ negotiated with God for the salvation of his people. And the conditions were, if he was going to rescue God's elect, the conditions were his life for ours. But he pressed forward and he would determined he would pay our debt. And it's on the cross where we see God's love most beautifully expressed. It was there that God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Romans 5 says, God, Christ, died for us. This love was God's prophetic announcement through Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is John saying there? He's saying that, that I may claim to be someone who loves God, but any love that I can present to God in my own defense, when I look at the cross, it really fails the comparison test of the way God loves me. A propitiation, he says, a propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is the satisfying of a just wrath. It's appeasing an offended party. It's a sacrifice that makes things right again. And John is saying that Jesus was that propitiation. Because of Jesus' intercession for us, God is no longer angry with us. Listen to me. Please hear this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... God is not angry with you. I want you to hear that. Because I talk to people all the time throughout the week that tell me how, how they just know God is disappointed, how they're letting him down. I'm telling you, God is committed to making you what you want to, what, what he wants you to be, and he is not angry with you. Not because, you know, he's taking a shine to you. He's not angry with you because his son paid your debts. He is not angry with you. In fact, this may be a hard thing for you to wrap your mind around, but through Jesus, God the Father is as pleased with us as He is with Jesus if we are in Christ. A powerful truth. A powerful truth and revolutionize the way you approach God, the way you pray to God if you understand that. But the Bible tells us 
that Christ is still interceding for us. You've heard that before. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. That means completely save you, up, you know, from one end to the other. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, when I was younger, I'd hear this passage, and I thought that it meant that Jesus was in heaven on his knees praying for me so that maybe I would be able to resist temptation and not sin, or maybe I'd just have generally good days, you know. But now I understand that this is saying much more than that. I understand when it says that he ever lives to make intercession for me, that Jesus' life, his unending life at the right hand of God, is his unfailing, unending testimony that I am in right standing with God. As he stands at the right hand, or seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Father sees him there, resurrected, vindicated, uh, having justified the people of God, he looks at him and he says, he's alive, so Mark must be justified. He's alive, so Mark must... Can I put it to you in this way? In this way? As long as Jesus is still alive, I will be justified by God's holiness or before God's holiness. As long as Jesus is alive. Now, when is Jesus' life going to be over? Never. Never. As long as Jesus is alive, I will be seen by God as justified for all eternity. So I want to wrap this up. So let me give you one more example from the day of the resurrection about Jesus fulfilling the role of prophet, not just in his, uh, in his word, but his, in his intercession. I love this story. It's one of my favorites. It's kind of lengthy, uh, you know, more than uh, this would usually be a text I would use maybe at the beginning. So try to uh, focus along and imagine the events as they're rolling out here. But this is from Luke uh, 24, beginning in verse 13. It says that very day, two of them, this is two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Don't you love Jesus' kind of coyness in this? Hey guys, what you talking about? I love that. Verse 18, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in the, there in these days? And he said to them, love this, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a what? who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all his people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day. I mean, the, the miracle expiration date on the can has already passed. It's been three days. This is the third day since these things happened. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
And some of those who were with us went into the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they said, uh, but, uh, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the what? All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The two disciples understood that Jesus was a prophet. They knew that there was something special, something better about him. What they didn't understand was that he was the prophet that Moses foretold. They knew Jesus, but they were too spiritually blind to see that everything about his life was summing up the other prophet's words. And this caused them incredible disappointment. What they thought should happen didn't. What they thought should be, wasn't. And this will always be the case if we fail to understand who Jesus really is and what he has done. We'll always be disappointed. But Jesus didn't commend them for this. Jesus didn't throw his arm around them and say, they're there. I'm sorry it's been three days. I'm sorry that what you thought would happen didn't happen. He didn't commend them for it. He actually said they were foolish. You guys are knuckleheads. That's the Mark Sharp translation. He says they were foolish and they were slow to believe all that the previous prophets had said about him. And this, when Jesus is so direct with them, this is Jesus being full of truth, which is really important for a prophet. But then he began to share with them from Moses and from all the other prophets, so that they could clearly see that it was really always all about him. And this was Jesus being full of grace. See, Jesus doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're just foolish, and walk away and say, you should have figured this out. No. Jesus opened the word, and he said, you guys aren't getting this? Let me help you, because God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And when you can't understand what he's doing, that's trouble, and you need his help. And he opened the scriptures, and he said, let me help. Let me open your eyes. Let me let you see what's going on here. So the scriptures identify Jesus as the one who is mighty to save. Jesus did with them what the prophets do. He interceded and he intervened by coming into their conversation. He could have just let them walk on by, but Jesus stepped into the middle of it. That's intervention. That's intercession. He came right in the middle of it. He wouldn't leave them in despair. He shared with them the word of God as prophets do. And in knowing the truth, they were set free. And the story proceeds to tell us, that these men, still not recognizing the risen Lord, invited him to join them for dinner. And as Jesus broke the bread and gave the blessing, illustrating, like we just did, what he did on the cross, 
The Bible says that he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And their eyes were suddenly opened. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as their eyes were opened, Jesus disappears from their sight. He vanishes. And it would be an understatement of the entire Bible to say their minds were blown. They were like, what just happened? And they ran, making their way back to Jerusalem. And the Bible says to each other, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened uh, to us the scriptures? See, Jesus is not a prophet, but he is the prophet who embodies the word of God perfectly, proclaiming it in his sinless life, in his amazing works, in his tender love, in his abundant grace poured out on the cross. He is living today, making intercession to God for you by the wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side. He is alive. And everything God has wanted to say to you prophetically, he has said in the person of Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad? Let's stand together. Let's just take a brief moment and let's thank God for his word. It was personified and embodied in Jesus. For the way it changes us and transforms us, makes us new. God, we thank you. You are good. You are wonderful. We thank you that your word was enough that it it showed us uh, what we needed, even through the law, through the prophets. And then, God, you presented your message in one final word in the person of Jesus Christ. And, God, we saw it all. You made it clear by the power of your Holy Spirit, illustrating Jesus' wonderful life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand. We saw it all. We saw the whole message. In a 33-year life, in an eternal reign at at your right hand, we saw it all. So thank you for the Word. We thank you often for the words of God in the Bible, but we thank you for the Word this morning. That the great prophet that Moses prophesied has come. And you said that the one who does not listen to him, you will personally require it of him. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts to work repentance and make us willing this day to submit our hearts to the rule of that prophet. We thank you for this. Lord Jesus, help us to cling to your word expressed in Jesus, your word expressed in Scripture. Help us to cling to you as the word and to look to you as the one who has spoken for God. Yes, in days gone by, you spoke through your prophets. But today, this day, you speak through the Son. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to um, pronounce this benediction over you. And this is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.